some point I told the story of Jonah to children, but I cannot bring that to recollection. So um, I'm thinking this may be the first time I've taught or preached either one from Jonah as well. So let's just jump right in here. Let me get my clicker out. Calling this lesson Jonah, the callous prophet of a compassionate God. There are a lot of really, I'll just call them weird ideas about the book of Jonah. A lot of attacks on the book because the ridiculous story of a man being swallowed by a whale, there is no absolute way that story could be true. Um, and I'm talking about from the Jewish faith, um, rabbis having believing it not being factual at all, to rabbis believing it's factual and giving extra information about it. Uh, this one rabbi had some really weird, highly respected guy apparently, had some really weird stuff about the God put a glass bottom in the belly of the whale so he could see all the wonders of the deep. And I mean, it went on and on uh, with just strangeness. There are people like Martin Luther who give very off-the-wall, very unbiblical um, teachings about the book and what Jonah's really about. I read some biz bizarre statements that Calvin had made about it. He said this was Jonah's confession, um, I guess, of how terrible he was. I don't know. But there's a lot out there that's really odd. And then, of course, there's the people who doubt the scriptures themselves. And so, they use this to show how ridiculous the Bible is and how ridiculous people of faith are for believing it. But I just approach it through faith like I do the rest of the scriptures, and I don't find this to be any more bizarre than Jesus feeding 5,000. Um, I don't know. Um, there's just nothing of the bizarre in this story to me, especially when every once in a while you see a news headline about somebody being swallowed by a huge fish and spit up a couple days later, and they're not dead yet. Um, it's like every once in a while, something like that happens, and it surfaces slightly in the news. You know, a lot of news media doesn't cover it, but it pops up places, and um, you read it, and you just wonder if God is allowing that to happen just to give us little chances to believe his word. And um, <clears throat> anyway, we see even things like this from time to time. I would say that the main thrust of the teaching, what Jonah's point was, I mean, I cannot imagine living this story and then writing it down for other people to read it. That's when you know the Holy Spirit is behind the book because Jonah doesn't even tell us if he ever got right with God or not. The way the book ends, I would agree with some theologians that say that the, they believe the reason why God ended, or Jonah ended with a question from God, is it just, it gives us the idea that Jonah did eventually get right with God. <clears throat> but Jonah doesn't even tell us that. And so it lends me even more to believing that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit because Jonah tells the, a really bad story on himself. So hence I call it the callous prophet <clears throat> of a compassionate God. Because I think if we study this out in all honesty and we put aside opinions on the book and we just take the book for what it says, 
one of the key things you find here is that God is a compassionate God, especially when you understand who the Ninevites were, how wicked, how evil, how corrupt, how brutal, um, just a really, really horrible group of people. And for God to give, uh, extend them mercy is quite fantastic. So let's look at first <clears throat> his name. The name Jonah means dove. He was the son of um, Amittai, which means truth. So he was the son of truth. And some people will take this and say, oh, well, see, that's not who his dad really was. It was just Jonah was the son of truth as a pro." and give weird stuff. I, I don't know. I haven't seen the weird stuff pop up in studying the other minor prophets. But you get to Jonah, and there's some real cuckoos out there trying to explain away what Jonah means. It's real simple. Jonah, dove. His father was truth, Amittai. He was the son of Amittai. What I think is interesting, though, is it would appear to me this is one of those things I would like to study out more. It would appear to me that Jonah seems to be an Old Testament type of the Holy Spirit. It's just interesting. His name means dove. The Holy Spirit is called by Jesus the Spirit of truth. And he's the one who went to call sinners to repentance. Well, who does that today in the church age? Who is the one convicting of sin, calling men to repentance? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He does that to the lost. He does that for the saved. And so I just, I think that Jonah was supposed to be a type of the Holy Spirit, but he didn't do a very good job at fulfilling that role. <clears throat> he was a prophet of the Northern Kingdom. He shows up in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. Let's jump back there real quick and look at this. He prophesied during a time of prosperity for the northern kingdom, at least by the end of his life. One reason for the northern kingdom's <clears throat> prosperity was because this was a, uh, a, a time where the Assyrian empire was not as powerful. They were not reaching out. They were not making as many and as strong of attacks as they had previously. So during the days of Jonah was a time where Israel had the chance to be able to expand their borders, to grow economically. And so it was a time of uh, prosperity, not that it was, um, not that they were right with God, but it was a time of growth on the for the nation. If you read in verse 25, talking about the king here, um, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said, said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So Jonah had made this prophecy that they would expand their borders. God fulfilled his word that he had given to the prophet <coughs> Jonah. 
This would have been about 60 years or so before the Assyrian captivity, which I think is interesting. God uses Jonah to help spare the people who were going to destroy the nation of Israel, which would possibly be one reason why Jonah would want to run and not go give those people a chance to get right with God. And their nation's going to get extended, and then they're going to turn on Jonah's own people as a result. In our chart that we've looked at, the timelines of the prophets, we find him after Obadiah, before Nahum and Amos, somewhere around there. Both the Bible and the Quran um, give um, Jonah's account. It's interesting, I, I've read part of the Quran's account of their story of Jonah, and it is very, very similar to what we have in the scriptures. He's the only minor prophet to be found in the Quran, and thus he's revered by the Muslim faith. Um, he's referred to by Jesus in Matthew 12. And I stick this right here because there's something interesting in the Muslim faith that contradicts what Jesus said. So I want to read here Jesus' words, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 39, Jesus said, um, but he answered and said unto them, um, they wanted a sign from Jesus. He said, an evil and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, which is the Greek form of Jonah. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, why do you think that the book of Jonah would be one of the most attacked books in the Bible? Because it was giving us an illustration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to quote it himself. Let's keep reading. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Jesus said, you have before you one that is greater than Jonah. Now look what Muhammad said about Jonah. Muhammad said, one should not say that I, not meaning Muhammad, the person speaking, am better than Jonah. So Muhammad believed that who is the great? The great one is Jonah. How dare anyone say they're greater than Jonah? Well, Jesus said, one greater than Jonah is with you. And that was Jesus Christ. While many in our day disregard the book as an um, disregard the book as an historical narrative, we regard it as literally true. To reject it, to reject the book of Jonah, is to reject the integrity of the scriptures as a whole. If you don't believe the book of Jonah because you think it's ridiculous that a man would follow, swallow a fish, he would live three days, and then he would puke him out, and then the guy would get up and go preach. If you find that too unbelievable to put in the Bible, you may as well rip out the Gospels too. I mean, Jesus is healing people. He's bringing people back to life. I mean, that's more ridiculous than somebody being swallowed by a fish and living through it. 
And then he rises from the dead. And I think that's the key to the attack. The book of Jonah gives us, shows us the mercy of God. It shows us a a city, a nation repenting um, from their sin. It shows so much. It's such a powerful, powerful book that um, Bible critics just can't handle it. The account of the great fish is no more absurd than than a resurrected Savior. So I would say... Don't worry with the scoffers. Don't worry with those who argue with it. Just get in the book and read it and study it and see what is God trying to reveal to us. Of course, there is the big argument over the whale. Jesus referred to it as it's translated in our English Bible as a whale. The studying that I've done of the Greek word translated whale in the New Testament, the first definition I find is sea monster. And apparently some of the, the, the Greek um, writers had used that word about a, for a sea monster. So it could mean sea monster. It could also mean large fish, which is actually what the Old Testament called it. And it could also mean whale. Hence the translators of our New Testament translated it early on, whale. Um, Of course, then there's the argument, well, was Jesus stupid? He called it a whale. It was a fish in the Old Testament. Doesn't he know the classifications of mammals and fish? Until the year 1818, a whale was classified as a fish. There was actually a court battle in 1818 that had to do with whale oil. Somebody didn't want to pay taxes on whale oil because, and and the guy was claiming apparently that it's a mammal, it's not a fish, therefore I don't have to pay the fish oil taxes on whale oil, something like that. And so it went to court and the court ruled that whales are mammals. And so ever since then, they're mammals. Um, and I understand the classification purpose, but before 1818, they were considered fish because they lived in the water. So I think the whole argument over that is just a smokescreen to distract us from what the book of Jonah is about. It doesn't really matter whether it was a great fish or whether it was a whale or whether the whale was a fish. Um, that's not the point of the story. And if we spend all of our time there, I think we're being really ridiculous. So let's keep going. Let's look at an overview of the book. Putting it in four points is divided very nicely in our Bibles. Number one, chapter one, I call this the chase. As it begins in chapter one, as God begins to chase after Jonah, look at verse one. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from, what was he trying to get away from? From the presence of the Lord. We could look at this and go, why did this chase happen? Why was it that God had to pursue so strongly after Jonah? And God did pursue him. God sent a great 
storm. God sent a great fish. Um, God went to great lengths to get Jonah in the middle of his will. If you look at the map here, it's pretty unbelievable. Here is Joppa, which is now modern-day Tel Aviv. He went to Joppa, and he got on a boat. It's the only natural seaport in the nation of Israel. He gets on a ship, and he's going to Tarshish, which is about 2,000 miles away. He is headed to what probably is present-day Spain. He is getting away. Nineveh is over here. He does not want to go to Nineveh. Now, if we look on the very practical human side of this whole story, he had a number of reasons why he may not want to go to Nineveh. Let's consider a few of them. Nineveh was a major city of the Syrian empire. They were a terrible, terrible enemy to the, um, the Hebrew people. Wicked, wicked nation. Violent nation. Um, things I studied about them in archaeology and Bible college, I don't think I'll ever forget. Let me read what the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary says about them. It says, Jonah was not pleased when God commanded him to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. The Assyrians worshipped a vicious god, Asher, and a multitude of other gods and goddesses. Assyrian brutality and cruelty were legendary. The Assyrians were known to impale their enemies on stakes in front of their towns and hang their heads from trees in the king's gardens. They also tortured their captives, men, women, or children, by hacking off noses, ears, or fingers, gouging out their eyes, and tearing off their lips and hands. They reportedly covered the city wall with the skins of their victims. Rebellious subjects would be massacred by the hundreds, sometimes burned at the stake, then their skulls would be placed in great piles by the roadside as a warning to others. Jonah decided he would rather quit the prophetic ministry than preach to such people. Nineveh was about 500 miles to the east, so he headed for Tarshish, probably what is now Spain, the farthest western location he knew, about 2,000 miles. Wicked, evil, vicious, vicious enemy. They had been coming on Israel and attacking them for years. Who knows, in the city where he was, he may have seen the, the brutality of the Assyrians. He may have lost relatives to these people. They were the most vicious empire of the time. And if God came to you and said, go witness to them, you would probably run too, just out of simple fear. I mean, if I go in there, I mean, he knew the things they did. They might start peeling off his skin to cover the city wall. I mean, this is not the place you want to go. You know, God had told them they were going to have hooks in their jaws and they would be taken away captive. Well, the Assyrians would literally put hooks in people. And if you didn't move fast enough, they would just jerk and rip your lip out and your jaw with, I mean, just brutal, brutal people. So in, from this simple perspective, Jonah didn't, wouldn't want to go. Another perspective, um, J. Vernon McGee points out, was that up to this point, God was sending the prophets to the Jewish people. Now God shows up and tells Jonah, who is a prophet to the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, shows up and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. That's not what Jewish prophets do. 
We stay here. The wicked come to us. And he goes on to explain, you know, the queen of Sheba. How did she find out about God? How did she come to worship him? She came up to Jerusalem. And she met God at Jerusalem. That's how a person came to God. The Great Commission was an odd thing because God turned everything around and no longer do you come to Jerusalem. He said, now you go out and preach the gospel to all people. God turned it all around at the Great Commission. What's God doing with Jonah? God's turning it around. He could have reasoned, God is not talking to me because God doesn't send Jewish prophets to heathen nations. I'm staying right here. He could have reasoned this, but that's not what he was reasoning here. If you look at what he says here in this verse, in verse 2, it says, in verse 3 rather, at the end of the verse, it says, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. To understand exactly what he meant by that, if you go to chapter 4, when he gets angry at God for forgiving the nation, what does he say? He's so angry, he wants to die. He wants God to kill him. And he says in chapter 4, he tells God, I knew you were going to do this. I didn't want to preach to them because I knew you would forgive them. Some Bible teachers say that Jonah ran from God because he didn't understand God. Hogwash. It says right here, he ran from God because he understood God. God was a compassionate God who would forgive those wicked, hateful, evil Assyrians. God wanted to extend them an opportunity for repentance, and Jonah didn't want to have any part of that. Bitter? Yeah. Hard? Yes. Understandably so. I, I shared in a Bible study recently during... Um, after 9-11, our family would, would pray every night for our president, for our military. And as we prayed, uh, and we were praying for Osama bin Laden to be caught, and as we're praying for these things, one night my brother just starts weeping. And when he could finally talk again, it was his turn to pray. And when he could finally talk again, he prayed and he asked God to have mercy on Osama bin Laden and give him an opportunity to be saved before our Marines killed him. I didn't like that prayer. I wanted that guy to go straight to hell. And I was going to be on the side of hell cheering as he went into the pit. That's how angry I was. And we just had D-Day, the 80th anniversary of D-Day. That's how a lot of Americans were after the invasion, um, the attack on Pearl Harbor. There was so much anger, so much bitterness. Laura and I read a biography a few years ago, autobiography a few years ago, about a man who, an older man we got to meet who was a prisoner of war in the Philippines under the Japanese. Um, he had joined as a very young man um, after Pearl Harbor. He had so much anger, so much bitterness toward the Japanese. If he saw a Japanese car drive by or motorcycle, he would curse it. Then the man got saved. And then God dealt with him about his bitterness. And he was pretty renowned, apparently, for his hate. So he called the news media and told them, tomorrow I'm going to such and such dealership and I'm driving a Japanese car. And the media showed up. I guess they didn't believe it. 
and the guy drove a Japanese car and did all of these outward things to show he had forgiven the Japanese. He had, he had suffered severely under um, the imperial Japanese soldiers. And so he had what we would say in a humanistic standing, he had a reason to be angry. He had a reason to be bitter. And no doubt, Jonah had a reason as well. So chapter one is about him running from God, him trying to get away. But this whole time, God is pursuing Jonah. Chapter two is the catch. It's not him catching the fish. It's God catching Jonah. In chapter two, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. So from the belly of the fish, he begins to pray. He turns to God. There's repentance in the heart of Jonah, at least at some point. He acknowledges God. He acknowledges what God is wanting him to do here. He acknowledges the greatness of God. And God has him to a place where he's willing to go. And in verse number 10, it says, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah unto the dry land. One thing real quick that's interesting to note. One of the chief gods of the king of Nineveh at this time was some type of a fish god. And the priest at that temple would wear scale, fish scales on their back. And it's just really interesting that God would send them a preacher who's been swallowed by a fish, who spent three days in the fish, was puked out on the shore. I figure probably back at Joppa. I just have a feeling God took him back to his starting place and said, now let's start over. You know, God drew the, the squiggly line, like pastor says. I, I think the squiggly line probably happened back at Jonah. I don't know. Maybe God had him taken further north up the coast so he'd have a shorter walk. I, I don't know. That's just my guesses. Whatever the case was, he walks into town. I, we, we don't know all that he preached. Possibly he told them the story of what God had done. Well, the king who worships this fish god has just been sent a preacher from a fish's belly. Who knows? That could have been part of what God used to reinforce um, this message to make this message even stronger. So if that's the case, God was using even Jonah's shortcomings, even Jonah's sin, even Jonah's rebellion, even Jonah's hatred for the Ninevite people. God was still using all of this <coughs> to work in the hearts of the Ninevites. So first we have the, the chase, the catch. Chapter three is the call. And I would break this up into three parts. We begin with God's call to Jonah. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Has God ever had to tell you something twice? I get so irritated at my kids when I have to give them the same thing twice. But God has to do it to me all the time. He said, arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We see God's long-suffering, God's patience, God's kindness toward Jonah. 
Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Now, archaeologists will disagree with this and say, look, <clears throat> there's no way it was a city so large. I mean, we archaeologists can see how big the city was. It wasn't that big. Some argue, well, he's just using this expression to explain how big it is. I suppose that could be. Um, it could be that from the day he entered the gate and walked across the city preaching, it took him three days to get across the city preaching. That could be a possibility. It's probably more likely that as he entered the greater Nineveh area and started preaching, it took three days to get from one side of the greater Nineveh area than the other side. I mean, if somebody came to Houston and preached, and they started in the greater Houston area, I mean, if I, if I go somewhere else and somebody says, where are you from? I say, oh, I'm from Houston. Nobody knows where Huffman is. Even in Houston, nobody knows where Huffman is. Um, Houston is a huge area. I grew up in New Orleans. I didn't grow up in New Orleans. I mean, when I was a kid, I, that was fighting words. We were not from New Orleans. We were from the North Shore. Not the New Orleans North Shore. We were from the North Shore. There's Lake Pontchartrain. It protected us from Sodom and Gomorrah. We were not sloping towards Sodom. We were not trying to get there. That lake protected us and divided us, and we were better than those Ninevites, I mean those New Orleanites down there. Um, there was a, a, a very strong, we are from the North Shore. Hurricane Katrina happens, and my dad would say, washed a bunch of them to the North Shore. And when they washed ashore, everything became the New Orleans North Shore. And at that point, you were from the greater New Orleans area. I, I, I hated that. It, got, it would get on my nerves because you'd see it on everything. I mean, you saw it on posters. You saw it on signs. You, you heard the news media talked about the New Orleans North Shore. I'm like, you people didn't say that a year ago. But um, the city expanded. That's how it was viewed. And it could very well be that this is exactly what he's talking about. The greater Nineveh area would take three days to walk across the whole thing. Whatever the case was, it took a long time as he walks across it. And um, in verse four, and Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the second part of this chapter, we have God's call to Nineveh. He's warning them, you have 40 days left. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast. That is just amazing that they would believe God, proclaim a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let him turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? 
and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. So they began their calling upon God. So we have the call of God to Jonah, the call of God to Nineveh, the call of Nineveh to God. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. What a powerful, powerful chapter. There are people I've read that criticize the king. He was an amateur king. Christian theologians that mock this king as though he were an idiot. Like he wouldn't do it. I'm like, I don't know. If, if you really believe the guy, if you really believe this preacher, you really believe his word, and, and we know there's archaeological evidence today that they believed the word of Jonah. There is a monument to this day. I'm not sure it's there today. ISIS has destroyed much of the city of Nineveh um, and removed a lot of the stuff. Some of it they've sold on the black market. Others, they say, this is idolatrous, so they just wipe it out, blow it up. But um, there was, to a certain point, a monument in the palace, actually by the grave of this king that led in this time of repentance, that was a monument to the prophet Jonah. Some believe that's where he was buried. Um, others say there's somebody else buried under that monument. It's just a monument. Whatever the case was, there's even archaeological evidence to prove that Jonah preached there. They believed it. Even the Muslims today revere Jonah, and they claim that Jonah was buried there. That I, somebody even claimed he was born there, which is really dumb because they claim he came from Israel. I'm like, how did he come from Israel? If he, Anyway, um, Regardless, there is evidence that this is what happened. These people repented, they turned to God, and God spared them. And we come to chapter four, the classroom. Now it gets in the nitty-gritty for Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, you want to know how angry he was? This is how angry. Oh, Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore, now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So he is so angry, he wants God to take his life. He wants to die because he cannot handle it that these wicked Assyrians have been spared. He was wanting the fire. He was like my heart was after 9-11. He was ready for Osama bin Laden to die. He was ready for it to happen. I don't know, maybe I'm more compassionate on Jonah because I have an enemy that I understand him feeling this way towards. And Jonah had much more reason than any Americans have ever had against any national enemy that we've had. So he's angry at God. In verse 4, he says, Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? Are you really, is this a good thing that you're angry? 
So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. This is pretty funny. He goes and pouts. <laughs> and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. He still had hope that maybe God would fry him. I mean, he's still hoping, maybe. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. Uh-oh, here's some of that supernatural stuff again. I mean, so weird, right? Read the whole Bible. Supernatural stuff happens constantly in the Bible. God is the God of the supernatural. He does amazing miracles. He is trying to teach his child a lesson. So he uses this gourd. And it came to pass, verse 8, when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die. Oh, now he's even worse. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Boy, you're bitter when you talk to God like this. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. I don't know, in the day in which we live, I get the statement God's making here. He said, there's also a whole bunch of animals there. You wouldn't spare the animals? I mean, people today would be more likely to spare the animals than they would a child, right? They want people to be burned at the stake. Literally, there are people that want, believe that people should be executed if they abuse an animal. But those same people are massively behind abortion. Really messed up mindset. God is dealing with a messed up prophet here. And he said, come on, there's all these animals. You don't want the animals to live? But before that, he mentions the children, those who cannot discern between their left hand and their right hand. How many of them are there? There's a huge multitude. He said, you cannot even be compassionate for the children that have done nothing to you, nothing to your people. The children are innocent. You cannot be compassionate to them or the animals? So he's left with this question, but this question teaches us such an important lesson. A couple things in conclusion. Jonah fled because he understood the character of God. He fled because he understood that God was merciful, that God was compassionate. And as God is teaching him this lesson, what God is coming to the point of saying is, I created these people. I can show compassion to them. I can offer them mercy. God knew that Jonah's heart was just as wicked as these Assyrians' hearts. He knew that they were, he had just the same potential to do the same things. I mean, he in his own heart's ready for them to die. That was something I had to deal with with Osama bin Laden was become, coming to a place of forgiveness, coming to a place of love and compassion 
where the Lord would have me be. God deals with his children. He wants us to adopt his heart. The book of Jonah teaches us through illustration that God is a compassionate God who desires all men to repent. And it is none of our business when God shows compassion on who he wants to show compassion on, shows mercy on who he wants to show mercy on. We need the heart of God. Jonah struggled because he failed to allow God's character to become his own. If Jonah had become like Christ, if Jonah had been a prophet of the Most High that had the heart of the Most High, when God said, go preach to the Ninevites, he would have said, God, I don't want to, and this shows me my heart is wrong, my heart is wicked, I need your heart, you give me the ability, you give me the desire to preach to these people because I don't want to do it. And all that whole long walk to Nineveh would have been a long prayer meeting with God getting his heart right and forgiving these hateful, wicked Assyrians. But it's not what Jonah did. He did not deal with his bitterness. He allowed that unforgiveness to harden his heart, and that's why I call him the callous prophet. And I'm not saying that in a hateful way. I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. I'm like J. Vernon McGee. I feel sorry for Jonah. I would not have wanted his job. So I end with this question. Who is your Nineveh? I've already shared with you. There was that opportunity of anger and bitterness after 9-11. There were some people I had to forgive. Some heart changes that needed to take place. And God dealt with, it was funny, I was studying this really hard the other night. I was studying about the Assyrian Empire and the city of Nineveh and their cruelty. And I ran to town after the kids had gone to bed to pick up something. And I, it was raining and it was cold. This was a couple weeks ago. It was raining and it was cold and I was headed to town and I see this man carrying his groceries on the side of the road. It's about... 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And I see the guy carrying his groceries down the side of the road. And I started to just pass him up. But as I pass him, I see him set down the groceries, pick up, take his hands out, stretch them for a minute, rub his hands, and pick up the bags and walk a few more steps. Nah, I knew I couldn't leave that guy on the side of the road. My heart, the Lord just smote me. I'm not one that goes around picking up hitchhikers. <sighs> So I pulled into the Dairy Queen and threw the parking lot back behind there into the Sonic parking lot. And I thought, by the time I pull out in front of Sonic, he's going to be in front of Sonic. Sure enough, we both get there at the same time. And I roll down my window, and he's stretching his hands again by this point. I said, sir, come get in. And he picked up his bags and came over. And he had so many groceries, he couldn't hardly get them in the car. And... Um, Anyway, get him in there, and we start driving, and he had this really interesting accent, really cool accent. And I asked him, I said, sir, I said, where are you from? I said, you've got a really interesting accent. I said, I, I really like accents, and I'm just curious. I don't recognize yours. And he had a funny look on his face. And um, he said, uh, I'm, I'm Persian, which... 
Iranian. I'm Persian. And um, <laughs> what's with your accent? I'm just picking, you know. And anyway, we talked for just a minute. I mean, his house was right there. And um, anyway, he's actually living in his brother's business right now. He had lost his car keys and couldn't find them for three days. And so he was walking. And um, anyway, we, I pull in. I, like I said, I mean, it's just a couple minutes, if, if a couple minutes. And as I pull in and he goes to hop out, he said, sir, he said, um, you're a Christian, aren't you? Or no, he, said, he didn't say that. He said, sir, you believe in Jesus, don't you? I said, yes. He said, then I need your prayer. And he said, I'm not even going to tell you what's been going on in my life because you wouldn't believe it if I did. He said, but I need prayer. And he grabbed his bags and tried to get away. And I said, wait, 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 sir, can I pray for you right now? And so I had prayer with the man and he walked away. But as I was headed back home, God just smote my heart and said, that is part of your Nineveh. This Persian man, this Iranian, a man by his national origin, should be an enemy of mine. But yet as a Christian, I mean, he's a man that would look at me and say, you're, you're, you believe in Jesus, don't you? And um, anyway, when he found out my name, Aaron, a Jewish name, that's a Christian, believes in Jesus. And then he gives me his name, and he's got his Muslim name. And I just thought it was funny what peace there was, what love and compassion that Christ spread abroad in my heart. And it was interesting because right after 9-11, I wouldn't have had that same type of response to a Muslim man. But to be able to have compassion on him and show the love of Christ to him, God was just convicting my heart as I went home. There is your Nineveh. So I asked, where is your Nineveh? Is there a people group that you have trouble with? Is there an individual that you need to forgive? Someone you cannot show the love of Christ to. God has compassion on them and God loves them. So I challenge you to allow God to work in your hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this message of Jonah. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of this story, that such a compassionate God would show his mercy on such a wicked people who would turn around 60 years later and would turn against your people. But Lord, we thank you for this message, and I pray that you would work in each of our hearts, that you would help us to be more compassionate, that you would help us to be more loving, that you would help us to take ourselves off the judgment seat and stop deciding who deserves your mercy and who doesn't. And let you be God. Let you be judge. And Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts if there is any hardness that we have toward any person or any people group. Lord, that you would break our hearts. That you would make our hearts tender. That we would be repentant of our unforgiveness. We would be repentant of our callousness. And Lord, we wouldn't run, that you wouldn't have to pursue us, but that our running would be into your arms and to a heart of forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would um, be with us, speak to us at the rest of the services today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.